You are listening to the sassiest podcast in the world. Born in the Nordics, democratizing B2B SaaS knowledge everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Ferdinand Götzen, the co-founder and CEO of Reveal. One of our biggest challenges was always that fundamentally working with qualitative insights is challenging. It's difficult. It's a high barrier of entry. And if you have a product-led growth motion, you want people to jump in and start using the platform immediately with minimal friction. Welcome back to another episode of the Sassiest Podcast. Uh, hope you're having a good day. Uh, we have had, um, I think, a quite good day, Daniel, today. A lot of podcast recordings and meetings with CEOs that's going to join our CEO network because that's something that is high on the agenda now. Uh, we are starting the cohort for 2024 soon. Yeah. And uh, we will welcome somewhere around 100 to 150 CEOs, B2B, SaaS, above 2 million euro ARR, for the CEO network that they deserve. Exactly. Oh, I like that. The CEO network that they deserve. And like the feedback we, we generally get is like, yes, it's only for CEOs. It's only for B2B SaaS founders. It's only for scale up. So there's a minimum threshold like Thomas at 2 million. But most importantly, especially in times like this, being a CEO can sometimes be lonely. You might have a great board, you have a great executive team, you're surrounded by great people, but sometimes you need to also have the opportunity to spar with people that are sitting in exactly the same boat as you, where you can bring forward half-baked ideas and bring forward your stresses without stressing the rest of the organization. Absolutely. So the fact that you get the opportunity to hang with your cohort for an entire year, to get to know them, to leverage their knowledge, to leverage their network, to accelerate your own journey. I think that's why people hang around here. So most of the people that we have in the network, this is the third year for them. So I think that's a testament to us doing something well with the CEOs. Absolutely. So maybe you see your CEO in the corridor, maybe you meet him or her at the coffee machine, maybe you see them making a presentation, but they might be lonely. And uh, this might be the thing they need. We actually just got um, a CEO that got the tip from one of the interns at the company that now also employed. So a shout out goes out to you, Julius. Uh, great work. And uh, thank you for, for seeing that your CEO uh, needed some support uh, here as well. So uh, with that... Um, also, another place to get support is if you come to our events or meetups that are here. And the big event that's coming up in April is SASIS 2024 in Malmö, Sweden. It's uh, April 16th to 17th. It's going to be two full days of great sessions, a lot of opportunities to network and socialize. The day before, there are different side events. You can play paddle, you can go on the canal. We end off with a poker tournament. It's great fun. It's the full B2B SaaS experience and you shouldn't miss it. Head over to SAS. 2024.com and get your tickets now. It's still early bird time, so you can get the best price now. Wow, I could feel the energy in that statement. <laughs> uh, you heard the man, get over there and get your tickets now. 
All right, uh, we're going to quickly uh, turn pages here, and we have an exciting episode ahead of us here. Uh, like always, we're going to talk to a founder that just went through a transaction where he sold his business. Let's tune in and see what he will share from that experience. Today, we are super happy to have Ferdinand Götzen, the founder and CEO of Reveal, here as a guest in the Sassiest podcast. So, hi, Ferdy, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I didn't know that you went by Ferdy. Is, is that just, you know, uh, in podcasts, or is that always? No, lots of people call me Ferdy, but... Uh... You know, I grew up all over the place and people from different countries call me different things. I'm yeah. not too picky. Okay. Ferdy, from, from here on, we, you go, for the next 30, 40 minutes, you're Ferdy. So we had the opportunity to, to hang out with you a little bit the, at Sassiest Amsterdam where you had a fantastic keynote. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And, and today we have you on here because there's been a, an interesting milestone in, in your journey with Reveal. We're going to touch upon that in just a moment. But before we get in there... If there's some people that don't know Ferdy, who is he? Yeah, so, uh, well, like you said, I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Reveal, which was a um, essentially a product discovery platform, platform to help product teams connect their customer insights to their decision-making more effectively. I started my career over 10 years ago in digital marketing, moved to Amsterdam, got closer to the tech scene, and then I worked with a lot of cool companies in senior growth roles. So I was the chief marketing officer, chief growth officer of a company called Recruity, now Talent. And I uh, was the director of growth of a company called 3D Hubs, uh, now called Hubs. So um built my career here, worked with a lot of different companies of different shapes and sizes. What I'm most passionate about is B2B SaaS. And then I work kind of holistically across what people describe as growth uh, with a special focus on product, customer insights, and brand. Yeah, you live in Amsterdam now, but where are you from? Um, I'm a mix of things. I'm like German, British, Hungarian all rolled up into one okay nice and where did you grow up in those places in those places <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah. equal parts equal parts yeah almost equal parts all right yeah and t- tell us about reveal you already touched upon it a little bit but just give us a little bit more detail like you know what do you guys do who are you for any particular segments that are more interesting for you guys yeah so i mean the origin story of reveal is interesting because reveal started when my co-founders and I took over a product that an agency had built. So there's this UX agency in the Netherlands called Falsblatt. They're one of the top UX research and design agencies in the country. They had built the first ever kind of UX repository tool in the market. Okay. I mean, way before any of the famous tools out there. And um, we essentially took that over and they became our angel investors. And that's how we started. So Reveal is two and a half years old, but the history goes back, you know, almost six, seven years. And um, we essentially build primarily for product teams with UX, CX, and marketing teams also involved. Essentially, anyone who wants to take the conversations they have with customers, derive the key insights from those, and actually use them in their decision-making, anyone who sees that use case could get value out of Reveal. And uh, we try to focus much more on mid-sized businesses because we're a PLG company and yeah, that's at the essence who we are and what we do. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your ideal customers in terms of like, were there certain verticals that were more key to what you guys were doing? Certain customers that landed easier? Yeah, SaaS and e-commerce worked really well. I think anywhere where 
you're collecting a good amount of qualitative data. So it either means you have a large base of customers and users, or you have a very diverse base of customers or users, or you have some feature or product complexity. Gotcha. So anywhere where more insights help make better decisions, help drive growth faster, that's always a great use case for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know you guys have been moving really fast here the past two, two and a half years. So just give us some numbers that describes the business, just to put things in perspective. Yeah, I think over the last two years, we served over 2,500 product people. Um, we've worked with hundreds of different companies, companies like Postanel, companies like Albert Hein, Philips Signify, Papercut, uh, Tamaris. So really across the board, a lot of different companies active in, you know, we had companies, we had companies from seven, eight different countries. And, um, yeah, we raised a 1.5 million kind of pre-seed round two years ago. And, um, yeah, well, we actually just sold the company, and that's something we'll get to in a sec. Absolutely. And before we go into that, I mean, you mentioned that you have a PLG motion. Does that mean that you have a free version of the product, or how does the whole, you know, free freemium paid yeah, thing look like? Yeah, so we had a free trial with relatively uh, a flexible extension, but uh, one of the things we were exploring was freemium. Um, so essentially, low barrier for entry, come in, try the product, build up a, your core use case, get that quick aha moment, and then start looking into bringing in colleagues and then other team members and then expanding and moving to paid. Okay. What was the freemium, uh, so to say, end game? Was it because, you know, you have 14 days, so it was based on time or it was based on... It was based on time. It was based on time, not certain actions in the system. Yeah, that was the free version that was time limited. And then they had to decide if they would like to sort of buy the solution. Yeah, so we played around with, I mean... We never really implemented this one model that we just, we were constantly experimenting. So over the last two and a half years, you know, we've tried different kinds of timeframes for the trial. We've tried getting free extensions in exchange for certain actions. We've also considered doing a complete freemium plan. When you're a startup in the early stages, though, you need to prioritize what you're going to be working on. And anytime you have to work with feature discrimination and turning features on and off and activating and deactivating them, that was time we'd rather have spent or we prefer to spend on actually developing out the core features and functionalities. Feature discrimination, I like that. Is is that like, I've never heard it before, but maybe because I'm not a product guy, is is that a term that everybody uses out there? Yeah, I mean, feature discrimination is just this idea that well, you discriminate on features depending on what kind of plan somebody is on. Yeah. So whenever you exclude features from a certain plan, so you can usually charge based on usage, how how much volume, how many users or how much volume of data, or whatever, or you can discriminate on features. Yeah. And um, usually if you want to do, for example, a full freemium model where it's unlimited free account, where you just have a tier that's free, right. you need to omit certain features for two reasons. Number one, you need to minimize the distractions, the complexity of the product to get people hooked as quickly as possible. And number two, you need to give them a reason to upgrade and move into a paid tier. Exactly. Yeah, and that was something we avoided for for a while. Yeah, cool. And uh, going into the main topic, you, you just mentioned that you uh, just uh, exited the, uh, the operation. Uh, why? Why? Um, I think at the end of the day, any major decision you make, whether it's to raise funds, whether it's to pivot, whether it's to sell your business, either partially or whole, it comes down to why are you doing this in the first place? What is your goal in the long run? And what path gets you there uh, most effectively? The reason we decided to sell Reveal was for various reasons, you know, the, 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 the mission and the vision we set out for ourselves we started to see what the different options and paths were to achieving that. 
And we were very lucky to come across this company called Next. They do, they do what we do in a similar space, a bit more established, they've been around for longer. Um, and we saw this big opportunity to, we saw this as the best way to kind of leapfrog our development and fulfill kind of our mission. Mm. And um, I'm happy to go into more detail on that, but that's essentially why we decided to do it. All right. Okay, that's that's interesting. And thank you for, for, for addressing that. Uh, I'm curious though, like, did you set aside like you and your co-founders, like a game plan and like, okay, guys, I think we're at a state now where we're selling the business. Let's make the moves to become sellable or attractive for somebody to buy or was it the other way around that people started coming knocking on your door and you felt like hmm guys maybe this is an option we need to consider a little bit of both i i don't think we ever set out to say hey we want to sell this company in two and a half years right that, that was never our goal you know our goal is if we sell it's going to be in 10 years and it's going to be at you know unicorn terms and it's going to be you know uh, conquering the world kind of story and amazing um of course in this situation what happened was we pivoted in January this year, we moved from kind of the UX space more into product discovery, which is what I would say more the holistic use of customer insights within the product development process. Mm -hmm. And then we started to see this AI opportunity. And we started looking at this AI opportunity and we saw this huge opportunity. We were like, this is the thing we need to be doing. One of the biggest challenges when it comes to using qualitative data is that it's a huge pain in the ass. They're hard to access, they're hard to centralize, they're hard to analyze, synthesize, and actually use. It's not like it's not like your hard data where if you have an analytics tool, you just pull up a graph and then, you know, the developers do all the, the heavy lifting and setting it up, and then you pull up your graphs whenever you need them and you get the information you want. Qualitative data doesn't work that way. So despite all the successes we had and uh, really working really effectively with some great companies, one of our biggest challenges was always that fundamentally working with qualitative insights is challenging. It's difficult. It's a high barrier of entry. And if you have a product-led growth motion, you want people to jump in and start using the platform immediately with minimal friction. Right. But what do you do when you work with a subject matter that by definition has friction? Because you need to bring all these different, the customer conversations and the surveys and the customer support tickets and the recordings. You have to centralize them. You then have to highlight key bits and pieces and glue them together. It, it, it's incredibly cumbersome. Mm. So around seven, eight months ago, we said, we saw this generative AI trend. And for the modern generative AI standards where everybody and their grandma's building generative AI right now, <laughs> we were pretty, not ahead of the curve, but we were on the front end of the curve. Right. We started building, we started playing around with it. And through this process, we met the guys from Next. And these guys, they had, they were a Microsoft scale-up team. And through hustle and serendipity, they were introduced to OpenAI over a year ago. They started working on this stuff like Q2 last year. So they're way ahead of the curve. Okay. And then we saw this company that had successfully built what we were trying to build and shared our vision and shared our values. And it kind of just crystallized from that. There are, of course, other factors, and it's never that simple. And every story that sounds super clean is always more complex under the surface. But that was just this kind of ideal match where we said, we're trying to do this thing really awesome, but there's a company that already does this thing really awesomely. Okay. So maybe we should join forces. Yeah, makes sense. But did that also feel, I mean, you had this vision and you see there is another company having the same vision and they are further ahead. Did that, you know, make you feel that, all right, great, now we can put our baby on that journey, but now we want to go and, and chase another vision? D did you feel like your initial ideas were sort of fulfilled and, and you felt another sort of urge 
to to look at something else because I know that you're gonna you, you mentioned before when we talked you're gonna stay for the rest of the year, right? But then you're gonna do something else. Yeah. So again, this is this is a process that happens over a long period of time, and there's a few different factors that come into play. So number one is runway. As a company, you have runway, and if you have runway, you need to make decisions. Mm. Can you radically pivot in a direction that might churn half your customer base? Probably not if you're running out of cash. Yeah. Can you raise at terms that are favorable, especially with the way the market changed in the last 12 months? And then you start seeing different routes. And you have to ask yourself, okay, there's a few different things we can do. We can cut our capacities down really radically and go towards a kind of break-even path and try to sustain ourselves. And then we're basically building quite slowly, but sustainably. Right. In the generative AI race, one of our assumptions was being six months behind everyone else is like being 10 years behind everyone else. It's very hard to keep up. So that was one of the considerations. The other consideration we had is raising another round. And we spoke to many investors and we had some, we, we had various kind of ideas and options and offers on the table that we were considering. Then the question is, what are the terms, you know, we raised under in a very different kind of climate than the current climate. We had to look at the options and can we raise the amount we need to make the progress we need to make to do this successfully. That's consideration number two. And then consideration number three is, is there another path, in this case an M&A path, where the company fits our ambitions? Mm. And then there's many small things that come into play. For example, in my case, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I'm a founder. I mm. don't see myself as the founder whose company gets acquired and then joins as head of marketing or VP of growth. It's just not me. Yeah. I mean, you could all like a, a chief uh, innovator or something or strategy or you know product evangelist or something like that sure and i will probably join in an advisory capacity i will be joining in an advisory capacity but not in a full-time mm. full-time capacity in, in the long run because i like to build things and i want to keep building things yeah and i think for us it was just a combination of factors where the m a opportunity was really uniquely interesting similar values we're a very value-driven company so one of the reasons we managed to kind of coordinate this M&A was because everyone on our team knew exactly where we stood every step of the way. We involved our whole team in every major decision. We kept them informed through thick and thin. We were completely transparent. Okay. So how er how early on in this process, when you and your, your co-founders knew that, okay, we're going to explore this M&A path here now, selling the business, yeah. how quickly after you landed in that decision did you inform the rest of the crew that that is an option before before even before yeah so one of the things what one of the things i mean it's a very long story that i don't want to bore you with but essentially once we started looking at the generative ai opportunity yeah we looked at what every company in the world was doing which is kind of salt bay sprinkling generative ai on top of their existing product right which 99% of the time is crap and doesn't work because if you are a process oriented tool yeah, generative AI might save a little bit of time, but it's not a moat. It's not a unique application of generative AI. Everyone can sprinkle that into their product. And that might make sense for your product, but that doesn't make you a, an AI-first product. When we looked at the opportunity, we were like, this changes how you work. I'll give you a practical example. Please. One of the big, not-so-sexy things in customer insight management is tags. You need to tag all your insights so that if I want to find out what did our B2B clients in this industry say about X, I used, I used to have to use tags and Boolean search to find my insights. But with generative AI, you don't need tags. 
because generative AI can recognize the text. So you can just write a chat and say, what do we know about our customers from last month? Or what do we know about XYZ? You don't need that. That whole behavior has to change. Right. So when we started looking at AI, we decided very early on that we're not going to be a company that just sprinkles this on top. This is going to fundamentally change the product. It's going to fundamentally, it's almost going to be another pivot. Mm-hmm. Mm. Four months or three months after we already just did a pivot. Right. As you can tell, as you can imagine, very popular conversation to be having with various stakeholders. <laughs> and when we saw that, that changed the game for us a little bit because we said, okay, you know, we can raise on the existing proposition, but then we wouldn't be very honest because we'd be basically saying, invest in this, but we're going to radically change it in the next six months. Mm. We can raise on the new proposition, but that has yet to be validated. So that very quickly crystallized different paths. And at that stage, when we discussed it at Founders, we discussed it with our team as well to get the feedback straight away. When was there anybody that was like, no, this is not a good idea. Like, let's not let's not drop our initial mission. Like, well, since you were so open and transparent with it, you must have seen some pushback somewhere. We're a small team, so that helps. Yeah. You know, if you're a small team and everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid, you get less pushback. It's just part of it. Like, if you don't involve people and then suddenly you involve people, you get pushback. Right. But we've always just been very transparent with one another and uh, from from day one. So people knew where we were going and they knew what the different options were. And I think it's important to note that we didn't say, hey, we're taking this M&A path. We basically just laid out and said, okay, options are break-even, M&A, funding. Those are the three options. That's three options any company ever has. Right. Unless, you know, you don't have the means to break even, then that's not an option. But mm-hmm. those are the three theoretical options you have. And then we just, with the team and among founders said, okay, break-even under these conditions. Funding only under these conditions. M&A only under these conditions. And that goes back to why are you building a business? Why are you an entrepreneur? Is it just for the glory and the and and the attention? Well, a little bit, of course. That's why we do why that's why we found companies and talk on stage and do podcasts and these kind of things, because we like to share what we do and we like we like the 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 energy around that. But it's also just everyone has their own personal reasons why they become an entrepreneur. And we had to link it back to that. So it wasn't so much a we're doing MA or we're doing a fundraise, it was under what condition can we make the thing we want to make happen happen in a way that in a way that we will be happy with it and that just set kind of uh, uh, uh it just set kind of parameters on the different paths and as we explored them the M&A ex- emerged as like that key opportunity how do you feel now i mean this is more or less decided set you have a one and a half month left at the company so what goes through your mind Yeah, I mean, well, the one and a half left of the company, it's more, there's a transition phase where we're very much focused on kind of merging the two companies. Mm. Um, so the company that acquired us is not a a massive company. It's a company that's way ahead of the curve. They are, of course, bigger and further along the, down the line than we are, but they're not a huge, huge company. So we had to make certain decisions on how do we merge our operations? How do we, do we merge the products? To what extent do we merge them? But it's definitely not like a You know, if you get bought by Atlassian, they probably keep your product alive independently for months or years before making a merger. This was very much a decision to bring these things together quicker. Um, that's kind of what this one and a half, two month period is about. And then moving more into a strategic and advisory role. I feel good about it. I mean, I'm really, I'm really happy that we found a company that keeps the legacy of what we've done alive. Yeah. Um, and again, this comes down to everyone's got different motivation, but for me, These guys think like we do. They have a similar vision on the market as we do. They have built something quite similar to what we were envisioning. Right. So in a lot of ways, it feels like 
what we've built and what we've done will live on in this company in a much more tangible way than if you get acquired by some massive company along with 20 other acquisitions and then eventually you get completely scrapped and you disappear. Mm. I really feel like the legacy, like Reveal lives on and the spirit the spirit of Reveal will live on uh, in Next. And of course, you know, parts of the product and the team and, uh, and, 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 uh, and the community and the brand, a lot of that will live on anyways. But I feel really good about that. And uh, as an entrepreneur, I like to build and I'm really excited at the prospect of being able to do that again yeah. um, so quickly. Yeah. yeah, it's really exciting. And, and I have a question for you. I'd love for you to share some of your biggest learnings, biggest aha moments during this process, because what you've just gone through, uh, there's probably a lot of the, the CEOs and founders that are listening to this podcast that at some point will go through at handing over their baby to somebody else. There might be a transaction, whatever triggers that. But like, as you've just gone through this exercise, Walk us through like some of the biggest aha moments or learnings from this process so far. Yes. I think the first aha moment was just that we live in different times. Um, you know, you hear stories of, you know, one, two, three years ago, you could get millions in Equihire just from handing over a few developers. I think that was that that was the reality that, you know, what was it, a million per head or something like that in terms of Equihire if you were handing over strong development talent. Mm. That is way less the case at the moment because companies are cutting their budgets and they've been laying off and they've been going down. So one of the one of the key, I guess I don't know if it's an aha moment, is that like the, the, the economic reality in which you're operating, of course, has a massive impact. And it's kind of like a, a, a ripple effect, which is that the, the economy is worse. Fund the fundraising landscape is tougher. Mm -hmm. The fundraising landscape disproportionately affected small, young, fledgling companies, which means that more companies have failed, which means lots of companies have flooded the M&A market, both kind of high-level M&A or even just your kind of selling for scraps M&A kind of market. So you're operating in a completely different kind of realm. So this is, again, why the serendipitous, we found a company that fits and it just came out of conversation. That's why it worked. Yeah. If I had just gone after the M&A path, I would have been quite nervous because it's not an obvious great path to choose at the moment. Other things that kind of stood out was you need to know what you're selling. You know, are you selling a market? You know, we're a European company and we're selling to a US company. That's not the case for us, but that's, are you selling a market mm. or a foothold in a market? Are you selling the talent? Are you selling a brand and a community, uh, which in our role, in our case, played a pretty big role? Um, are you selling a technical IP edge? Have you built something that either is a unique technical advantage for the company acquiring you, or is it, does it save them months of development time? Right. Um, those are the kind of things that are quite interesting. And then thinking about what kind of company is acquiring you. Again, if it's a big company, they might want to keep your tech alive and keep you running as an independent business. Right. Um, you know, you had Enjoy HQ by UserZoom, and then UserZoom was acquired by user testing. So you had Enjoy HQ by UserZoom by user testing. Then they function independently for a while. These kind of dynamics are things that you need to get clarity on very early on. And uh, one of the big realizations is just, being very clear on what benefit you bring to the table and why you want to do the M&A. In our case, you know, if you're doing an M&A because you don't have any other options, you can't really do anything. In our case, it was really about, we want, we have this vision for AI. We want to take this path. So it only makes sense if we find a company that also sees this path. And with Next, we found the one company that's been doing this since day one. So it is serendipitous and it is lucky um, because I couldn't have gone out. You know, when we set out here, are the paths, and here are the conditions. 
the M&A path seemed the most unlikely because of the conditions attached to it. Mm. It just so happened that it, it, it worked out in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Are you building a SaaS business? Achieving ISO 27001 or SOC 2 compliance can help you win bigger deals, enter new markets, and deepen trust with your customers. But it can also cost you real time and money. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work needed to get and stay compliant. Get audit ready in weeks instead of months and save up to 85% of associated cost. Over 6,000 fast-growing companies use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. Sassiest listeners get 20% off Vanta at Vanta.com slash Sassiest. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash Sassiest. Okay, and I, I love what you're saying here is like you got to understand what you're really selling and that is then in relation to who is actually the acquirer here. So uh, another question related to that is that, so you had Next on the other side of the table and you knew what you were selling. They knew what they were buying. Did you put a price tag on it? You said like, hey guys, like it's easy for me to say here. I could say, say like, hey, if you're listening to the Sassy's podcast right now, Thomas and I, we've never spoken about this, but just to, to irritate somebody, we'd be willing to sell this business for 15 million euros. Are we? Yeah, if somebody gives us 15 million euros, like we'll have a conversation. So did you put a price tag on this or did they suggest a pricing or a valuation? I think it again comes down to, honestly, I can't even tell you. I think both sides threw out kind of an expectation yeah. that were wildly unrealistic for the other party. So I think that first price tag doesn't matter almost. Uh, it comes out of the conversation and a deal like this is not simple. It is always complex. Yeah. And the price tag is only one thing, right? There's a lot of companies out there that will say, here, we've just sold for millions and millions, but they've raised so much VC capital and have so little equity and have so much liquidity preference on their cap table that they don't make a penny. And then you have companies that sell for, you know, what sounds like peanuts, but they, all the cash goes to the founders. Right. So a lot of things, first of all, you have more than just two parties. You have the company, the company. Then you have the founders behind the company. Then you have the investors and other stakeholders and shareholders of both companies. Yep. That adds all kinds of different kind of complexity and things to consider. Yeah. Then you have the, what are you selling? Are you selling the whole company as a whole? Are you selling it in assets? Are you selling it, what have you? There's a lot of different ways that a deal like this can shape. Yeah. So usually what happens is that we just talked with the guys. We had, there was an affinity there, you know, we... I like to think that we're much more value-driven than most companies mm. because most companies are only value-driven until, you know, it works economically. And then when it doesn't, then the values kind of shift and change. and yeah. Or they're, they're added three years down the line because you needed to hire or something like that. Uh, we, from day one, like, we're super clear on this is why we're entrepreneurs. This is why we do this thing. And the guys we met from Next, they were exactly the same. So it started just with a... We have diff similar visions, but we're really good at different things. So, Ferdy, I, I need to ask you. Yeah. Who said the number first? I don't know who said the number first, to be honest. I think we probably said the number first, but the, the number we said and what ended up being the deal are completely different things because there's so many complexities around. Okay. But you popped the number just in an email or, or over a beer. I think what happened is we essentially asked, you know, like, why are you guys doing this? And, you know, what is it worth to you? And what is your situation? And again, it's it's rarely a number in terms of because most 99.9% .9 of these deals are not cash only. So, uh, and I can't go into any detail on on, on, on how this set up. But no, I, I understand. But but sometimes you, you need to put the value and so, someone need to sort of raise that question. And even if it's cash or if it's percentages or, or so... 
at some point you need to do it. Usually you have a number below which it doesn't make sense to you. Yeah. But again, uh, if you have investors with liquidity preferences, if you have other stakeholders involved, these things influence what you can and can't do. You know, what really works for me might not work for our investors, might not work for the other company. I think all of these deals just start with a general, do we see a synergy? Like, do we see, and I hate that word synergy because it sounds like something some corporate spawned out like 50 years ago in a, some kind of weird, crappy in, internal training commercial. Yeah. But the, if you see those connections where you say, like in the case of this is very clear, we have built a very strong brand. We've built a strong community. We've built a strong sense of thought leadership in this space. Yeah. That's our big strength, the marketing and the brand and the vision. And the other company have a very strong vision. They have very strong product market fit. Yeah. And they have incredibly good sales motions. So they have a very predictable sales motion. And what they were really good at was not necessarily what we were really good at and vice versa. There was just a natural fit. And then the products and the visions are similar. So there was a really clear fit. And then it was just a, what is it going to take to make this work? Yeah. And then you reach a point where you say, this is it. I'm willing to go up to this point. Mm. Otherwise, I explore one of my other paths. Absolutely. But what was the complete, What was the hard part of getting this to work? You mentioned there were different stakeholders. There were different motions. It could be cash. It could be present. Yeah, it could be different things. So what was the hard thing to sort of agree on? The hard thing to agree on is always, first, it's price, and then it's conditions. Who's responsible for what? Who's going to be involved in what? Who's going to participate in what way? Um, it's the details. It's a lot of the details because you think once you come to a general agreement on the price tag, whatever that be, whether it's cash, whether it's equity, whether it's anything else. Bitter ballon. Yeah, bitter ballon. Bitter ballon is also a really solid <laughs> currency to be dealing in. Once you figure that out, you think, oh, you know, it's all done now. Yeah. And actually, the really hard part is you then still need to get internal buy-in from all the stakeholders. And then all the details come along. Are you going to take all of our talent? If not, why? Mm. If so, will you interview them for roles you have? That number one, what do you want me to do as a founder? What role do you see for me? Mm. Do you see any role for me? Do you want me to be involved? Do I want to be involved? Yeah. And then there's just things like who deals with legal complications related to indemnities, for example. If a former client, uh, you know, claims damages for some random reason or something you did before the deal was signed. Who's responsible? How does that match with whether you keep the entity alive, whether you merge the entities, whether you dissolve the entity um, that's being acquired? There's all these little things that suddenly pop up that, I mean, I, throughout this process, there were maybe six or seven moments where I thought, oh, this deal might not happen. And it wasn't on the obvious stuff where you think it'll fail. It's just these little things that pop up. Daniel, let us never do an m and It seems very <laughs> cumbersome. Every deal is cumbersome. But fundraising is also cumbersome. Like I said, 15 million, 15 million. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did you have a, like uh, a middleman that helped, you know, somehow balance discussion between you and the acquirer here? We involved our investors pretty early because they had experience with this and they had people in their network. Yeah. But to be honest, it was a pretty straightforward deal between between founders and stakeholders and shareholders it was okay so so the, 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 there was not a, an MA consultant or agency in between here trying to broker the deal and no 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 but that's also a little bit to do with the stage of the companies we're in i mean yeah. this conver this conversation started about six months ago five yeah. six months ago yeah so it was never like uh it was never like uh hey do you want to do an MA? oh sure let's do an MA. okay let's talk about it was never that it was we met we shared ideas. We talked about ways we could partner and integrate with each other. Then, like, the, the idea of the M&A doesn't immediately emerge. And then you start going like, 
oh, it's kind of similar. And then we met the guys and then we get along really well. And then we're like, hey, yeah. you're building this. We were going to build something like this. Yeah. And then it somehow crystallizes. Yeah. It crystallizes from that situation. And over time, you start going, you have back and forth on, this could be interesting. And a lot of big deals work this way. If you do a big sale, it's also often over a long period of time with different kind of key milestones that you can't necessarily predict at the start. Same goes with fundraising. It's just a process. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I want to know about your emotional state and what you felt. And like, I'm not in any way going to compare what you did to what I've done in life here recently, but I want to share one, call it a big moment for us during uh, the sassiest journey here. Go for it. The very first time uh, a few years ago, we ran our very first in-person event. Right after the event, it was a huge success. That's what people tell us. And we were really happy. The outcome was better, both in terms of signups and economical terms and so on. Right after, because this was still a hobby project, I was struck by a feeling of emptiness. It was like... I couldn't be happy. I didn't feel anything but numb. I was like, it was just empty. It was like, okay, this thing we were working towards, we did. And then it was like the end of the roads. This was before we we we, we put sat down together and made, made a plan for what we're going to do here. But what is the feeling after you sell your business? What have you felt? I think the main feeling is yet to come. Yeah. I mean, we announced this two days ago. You guys are good in your timing. So we know this two <laughs> days ago and it's not the end of the journey, right? So yeah, no. I think there's a lot of feelings that come into play. I mean, the, the way I say this is like, you need to really have your ego in check. And that's coming from, you know, a marketing guy that likes to stand on stage and talk about himself. That's not always <laughs> easy. But you know, the, when, when you have these kind of M&A opportunity, you're always tempted to be like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to do it better than everybody else. And then you get to a point where you're like, if we join them, is it going to be better? Yeah. And like, you go like, it might be better, but do I really want to admit that I'm better off joining forces with them? Does does that mean that I sh- I failed because I didn't go all in by myself? Because the, 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 the LinkedIn world especially is, it's inundated with founder success stories, which are 1%. N- not even. Well, not even. Yeah, it's actually like 0.1%. And behind every founder success story... Every one of those founders probably had a few failures before that. So the way I I look at it is, you know, there is that part of me that goes, you know, what I say is by by joining a company that has a similar vision, has used very similar assumptions, it's an incredibly gratifying and frustrating experience at the same time. Because on one hand, you're like, everything they're doing validates the ideas we had. So should we be doing this ourselves? But at the same time, hey, everything they're doing validates the ideas you had. That's pretty cool because 99% of your ideas probably are wrong. So it's really great to see that you're on the right track. So I get a lot of gratification out of the fact that these guys are doing something very similar to what we wanted to do, which is very different than if you join a completely different company that was just expanding into a new vertical or adding a new kind of feature set. Yeah, That's a different experience. But I think there will be a sense of, wait, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, but I'm still working with Next. I'm supporting them, and I'm really excited to to be doing so. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how I feel once. Uh, once I have a bit more time on my hands. All right. So, do you have any tips? If you if you have three three tips for for a founder here that are going through the same thought process that maybe you did six months ago or a year ago, what what would that be? Number one tip is 
being a SaaS startup founder is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I love it. Don't get me wrong. This is not me saying, hey, I'm out of the game. I'm going to do it again. And it will be a nightmare next time as well. It's an uphill battle. It's a grind. There are so many stressor setbacks. You need to make compromises. You need to make sacrifices. And that's just the key. You can try to protect your free time. You can try to balance your priorities. You should. I not. I don't subscribe to the whole, oh, as a founder, I need to work 20 hours a day. I don't believe that. Mm. As a founder, I can't have weekends. I don't believe that. I don't subscribe that to that at all. Okay? That's a more powerful statement if I just sold my company for $10 billion, But still, yeah. <laughs> I don't subscribe to that. However... It does require sacrifice. It requires hustle. You live and breathe your company. You know, all of those things you don't have when you're, when you're employed somewhere, it's frustrating. You don't have the final say on things. You don't get to do things exactly your way, but it comes with a certain, but at least I don't care that much. With, as a founder, you have to do all the, you have all the freedom. You have all the power. You have all the decision making, but you care a lot. Yeah. And when you care that much about something, that you do not fully control because a business, you do not fully control it. That is, that comes with stress. And I think, um, I think that's something that people need to know is part of the process. Mm. And you need to find a balance there on, you need to be doing it for the right reasons is what I'm saying. It, it costs a lot to be an entrepreneur. So you need to ask yourself, why am I doing it? And you need to stay true to those reasons. Yeah. For me, for example, independence is the reason I do this. Okay. Location independence. That's why my company's remote but also just independence in how I live my life, where I live my life, how I make decisions, the path I choose. So that was really important. And one of my experiences is, you know, we had great investors. You know, we, we were lucky because you hear a lot of stories about investors. We had great investors. But one of my big learnings is that raising VC money early does not totally gel with that view on independence. Yeah. Because you are put on a timeline to raise again. You are put under pressure to make certain decisions, which you don't make when you are bootstrap, for example. Mm. So one of the things I'll be playing around with in the future will be a more bootstrapped, or let's say a fund-strapped approach, essentially building the foundation bootstrapped and only considering funding at a later stage. Okay. Uh, any more advice for, for someone that is thinking of selling their business or merging? Well, does it facilitate your ultimate vision and your ultimate goal? Mm. Is it the best way to reach your goals? If it is, go for it. If it isn't, don't do it. All right. So looking forward here, I mean, you know what you're going to do until the end of the year, right? What are you going to do in January, February? What are you going to do in a year's time? No idea. I'm taking a break. Yep. Where are you doing on a break? Where do you go? So I usually live, try to live a quarter of the year in Spain. Okay. To avoid, uh, well, the getting dark at 3 p.m. kind of uh, lifestyle. <laughs> uh, so I'll be going to Spain as I do every year. And uh, January, February, I'll be taking time off and... I don't know yet. It's just about, I, I compare it a bit to uh, reading tea leaves. You need the tea leaves to settle on the ground before you can read them. And that's how I feel with all these thoughts and ideas from the last two and a half years. I need them to settle so I can really kind of learn from them and uh, and get the energy to do something new. Yeah. But, you know, for every month that passes, you get one month behind the, the next AI idea. Yeah. So I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> that's fine. Fuck, fuck AI. You know. <laughs> But uh, besides that, okay, you have Spain to look forward to. Uh, is there anything that you're looking for right now? Maybe uh, the next co-founder or something else in life that uh, we have a great community listening. So take the opportunity to make a shout out. Uh, well, uh, I love my co-founders. And uh, if they have any appetite to do something again, I will work with them again in a heartbeat. And this is something we talked about very early on. 
Um, but there will be a period and uh, where I will have a bit of time on my hands and I might be interested in dabbling and advising and supporting a few different companies. It's something I did before Reveal. I tend to put all my focus in one thing when I start building, but uh, I am very open to talking to companies about their needs and you know i know how to build brands i know how to build products i know how to build communities and thought leadership so if anybody needs that kind of uh help i'm always happy to chime in and be that as a mentor or a formal advisor or whatever i'm always open so all right and if you were about to lie on the beach in spain listening to a nice podcast episode what guest would you suggest that we would get here at the sassiest podcast that would make you feel warm and fuzzy um, well, I get to talk to him pretty regularly because he's a friend of mine, but I would recommend Max van der Ning, okay. who is uh, the founder of a marketing agency, a B2B SaaS marketing agency here in Amsterdam called Unmuted. All right. I think there's not a lot of people making B2B SaaS as sexy as they are, and uh, they're somebody you should definitely talk to. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing so openly with us. And uh, again, I, I think if we missed it in the beginning, Congratulations on on this exciting milestone in your professional career for Reveal's uh, journey here. Thank you. And we're looking forward to see what's next once you come back from Spain. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to find out what next is all about, you can go to nextapp.co. So. Yeah, there you go. All right, take care now. Thanks, guys. Yeah, see you around. Okay, Daniel, what's your takeaways from this episode? I think there's an obvious one here. At least it was obvious one for me when Ferdy said it. Know what you are selling. Are you selling your talent? Are you selling your customers? Are you selling a brand or community? Know what you're selling and know what the buyer wants to buy because that is the initial match that needs to be done. And if you can do that right, then I think that will also probably, he didn't say that here, but from my understanding is that that will also drive some of the discussions around value transactions and so on but know what you're selling and to whom you're selling it to what about you thomas i think it was interesting when uh, you know we asked him when he told the team about uh, how transparent they were and actually that he said that they talked about it before yeah this whole motion started and, and also described very clearly the different options they had and sort of what was good and bad about it and what it would take for them if they choose the one or another path. So I think if you do that, it's much easier to go through with it and, and also, you know, upcoming discussions or questions and everything. So involve your team, describe what the options are so everyone can understand, you know, what, what it will mean for them depending on what happens. So that's it. Yes. Exactly. And speaking about involving the team, for us, our team, that's all of you guys, all of you listeners here. So if you want to contribute, which we always hope and which we always appreciate, to more content, please suggest speakers, topics for us to bring up here in the podcast, for us to put forward in the upcoming sessions. But we do this together with you. I know you've heard me talk and preach about co-creation but that's really what this is all about so if you have any ideas you know where to find us contact at sassiest.com and you know we live on linkedin so you know where to find us absolutely did you know that uh, sassiest has a job board so sassiestjobs.com there you can find jobs within the b2b SaaS space and you can also put your open positions there and it's for free and also we have something else in that area coming right up and that's the sassiest jobs day so on december 8th december 7th you were close december 7th okay december 7th 
then it's time again. So if you're curious about uh, companies out there that is hiring, you should definitely sign up for that. And you can get the five or ten minute uh, pitches about the company culture, open positions and other things. And also if you have open positions and if you want to get in front of the talent here in Europe in the B2B SaaS space, you should definitely reach out to us. You heard the email before. It's contact at sasnordic.com and I hope to see you there. It's December 7th, nothing else. And with that, we thank you for today. We will be back very soon with another podcast episode. Thank you for listening and have a great evening. Ciao.